Section 20 of Stories from the Fairy Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan. Stories from the Fairy Queen by Mary MacLeod. The Adventure of the Damsel, the Two Knights, and the Sultan's Horses. As Sir Artigal rode forth on his way, accompanied only by Talus, he saw far off a damsel on a palfrey flying fast in terror before two knights who pursued her. These in turn were themselves pursued by another knight who pricked after them with all his might, his spear ready leveled. At length the latter overtook the hindmost of the two knights and compelled him to turn and face him, but the other still pursued the maid, who flew as fast in front of him and never stopped till she saw Sir Artigo. To him she ran at once, in glad haste, hoping to get help against her enemy, and Artigal, seeing her approach, went forward to relieve her fear, and to prevent her foe from hurting her. But the pursuing knight, greedy as a hound after his prey, still continued his course, thinking to overthrow Sir Artigal with his spear. Thus, alike sternly resolved, they met fiercely. But Artigal was the stronger, and better skilled in tilt and tournament, and he hurled the other out of his saddle quite two spears' lengths. The pagan knight, unluckily for himself, pitched on his head, broke his neck, and was killed on the spot. Meanwhile the third knight had defeated and slain the second of the villains, and leaving him there dead, he ran on to overtake his companion. Instead of him he found Sir Artigal, and not knowing he was also on the side of the damsel, he ran at him without thinking, and the latter, seeing him approach so fiercely, made against him again. So they met and struck strongly, and broke their spears. Yet neither was dismounted, though they both shook to and fro, and tottered like two towers quaking in a tempest. But when they had recovered their senses they drew their swords, meaning to make amends with them where their spears had failed. When the damsel, who had seen the end of both her foes, now beheld her friends beginning for her sake a more fearful fray, she ran to them in haste, crying to them to stay their cruel hands, until they both heard what she had to say to them. "'Ah, gentle knights!' she cried. Why do you thus unwisely wreak on yourselves another's wrong? I am the injured one whom both of you have aided. Witness the two pagan knights whom you may see dead on the ground. What more revenge, therefore, do you desire? If more, than I am she who was the root of all, end your revenge on me. When they heard her speak thus, and saw that their foes were indeed dead, they immediately stayed their hands, and lifted up their visors to look at each other. And then Sir Artigal saw that his adversary was none other than Prince Arthur himself. Filled with admiration for his gallant and noble bearing, and touched with the deepest affection, he drew near, and prayed pardon for having unknowingly wronged him, offering to yield himself to the prince forever, or to any penance he chose to inflict. To whom the prince replied, Truly I need more to crave the same pardon, for having been so misled by error as to mistake you for the dead man. But since it pleases you that both our faults shall be forgotten, amends can soon be made, since neither is much damaged thereby. Thus their perfect friendship was easily restored, and they embraced lovingly, each swearing faithfully on his blade never thenceforth to nourish enmity against the other, but always mutually to maintain each other's cause. Then they called the damsel, and asked her who were the two foes from whom she was flying so fast, and who she was herself, and what was the reason why she was pursued by them. The maiden, whose name was Samiant, replied that she was in the service of a great and mighty queen called Mercilla, a princess of great power and majesty. She was known above all for her bounty and sovereign grace, with which she supported her royal crown, and strongly beat down the malice of her foes, who envied her, and fretted, and frowned at her happiness. In spite of them she grew greater and greater, and even to her foes her mercies increased. 
Amongst the many who maligned her was a mighty man dwelling near, who, with cruel spite and hatred, did all in his power to undermine her crown and dignity. Her good knights, of whom she had as brave a band as any princess on earth, he either destroyed if they stood against him, or else tried to bribe slyly to take his part. And not content with this, he was always trying by treacherous plots to kill Queen Marcilla. He is provoked to all this tyranny, they say, by his bad wife, Adicia, continued Samiant who counsels him, because of his strength, to break all bonds of law and rule of right, for she professes herself a mortal foe to justice, and always fights against it, working deadly woe to all who love it, and making her knights and people do likewise. My liege lady, seeing this, thought it best to deal with Adicia in a friendly fashion, in order to put an end to strife, and to establish rest both for herself and her people. She therefore sent me on a message to treat with her, by way of negotiation, as to some final peace and fair arrangement which might be concluded by mutual consent. At all times it is customary to afford safe passage to messengers who come on a just cause, but this proud dame, disdaining all such rules, not only burst into bitter words, reviling and railing at me as she chose, but actually thrust me like a dog out of doors, miscalling me by many a bitter name, who never did any ill to her. Then lastly she sent those two knights after me to work me further mischief, but thanks to heaven and your valour they have paid the price of their own folly. So said the damsel, and showed herself most grateful to Prince Arthur and Sir Artigal for their aid. The knights, having heard of all the wrongs done by the proud dame Adicia, were very indignant, and eagerly desired to punish her and her husband the sultan. But thinking to carry out their design more easily by a counterfeit disguise, they arranged this plot. First, that Sir Artigal should array himself like one of the two dead knights, then that he should convey the damsel Samiant as his prize to the sultan's court to present her to the scornful lady who had sent for her. This was accordingly done. Directly the sultan's wife saw them, as she lay looking out of the window, she thought it was the pagan knight with her prey, and sent a page to direct him where to go. Taking them to the appointed place, the page offered his service to disarm the knight, but Sir Artigal refused to take off his armor, fearing to be discovered. Soon after Prince Arthur arrived, and sent a bold defiance to the sultan, requiring of him the damsel whom he held as a wrongful prisoner. The sultan, filled with fury, swearing and cursing, commanded his armor to be brought at once, and mounted straight upon a high chariot, dreadfully armed with iron wheels and hooks, and drawn by cruel steeds, whom he fed with the flesh of slaughtered men. Thus he came forth, clad in a coat of mail, all red with rust. The prince waited ready for him in glistening armor, right goodly to see, that shone like the sun. By the stirrup Talus attended, playing his page's part, as his master had directed. So they went forth to battle, both alike fierce, but with different motives. For the proud and presumptuous sultan, with insolent bearing, sought only slaughter and revenge. But the brave prince fought for right and honor against lawless tyranny, on behalf of wronged weakness, trusting more to the truth of his cause than in his own strength. The sultan, in his folly, thought either to hew the prince in pieces with his sharp wheels, or to bear him down under his fierce horse's feet and trample him in the dust. But the bold knight, well spying that peril if he came too near the chariot, kept out of the way of the flying horses. Yet as he passed by, the pagan threw a dart with such force that, had he not shunned it heedfully, it would have transfixed either himself or his horse. Often Prince Arthur came near, hoping to aim some stroke at him, but the sultan was mounted so high in his chariot, and his wing-footed coursers bore him so fast away, that before the prince could advance his spear he was passed and gone yet still he followed him everywhere, and in turn was followed by him. 
Again the pagan threw another dart, which, guided by some bad spirit, glided through Prince Arthur's cuirass and made a grisly wound in his side. Furious as a raging lion, the prince sought to get at his foe, but whenever he approached, the chariot wheels whirled round him and made him fly back again as fast. And the sultan's horses, like hungry hounds hunting after game, so cruelly chased and pursued him that his own good steed, although renowned for courage and hardy race, dared not endure the sight of them, but fled from place to place. Thus for a long while they rushed to and fro, seeking in every way to find some opening for attack, but the prince could never get near enough for one sure stroke. Then at last from his victorious shield he drew the veil which hid its magic light, and coming full before the horses as they pressed upon him, flashed it in their eyes. Like the lightning which burns the gazer, so did the sight of the shield dismay their senses, so that they turned back upon themselves and ran away with their driver. Nor could the sultan stay their flight with reins or accustomed rule, as he well knew how. They did not fear him in the least, their only fear was that from which they fled dismayed, like terrified deer. Fast as their feet could bear them, they flew over hill and dale. In vain the pagan cursed and swore and railed, and dragged with both hands at the reins. He called and spoke to them, but nothing availed. They heard him not. They forgot his training, they went which way they chose, heedless of their guide. Through woods and rocks and mountains they drew the iron chariot, and the wheels tore the sultan, and tossed him here and there from side to side, crying in vain to those who would not hear his crying. And all the while Prince Arthur pursued closely behind, but could find no means of smiting his foe. At last the horses overthrew the chariot, which was turned topsy-turvy, and the iron hooks and sharp knives caught hold of the sultan and tore him all to rags. Nothing was left of him but some bits of his battered and broken shield and armor. These Prince Arthur gathered up and took with him that they might remain as a token, whenever the tale was told, of how worthily that day, by heaven's decree, justice had avenged herself of wrong, so that all men might take warning by the example. Therefore on a tree in front of the tyrant's door he caused them to be hung in the sight of all men, to be a memorial forever. When the Lady Odysseus from the castle height beheld them, she was appalled, but instead of being overcome with fright, as another woman might have been, she immediately began to devise how to be revenged. Knife in hand she ran down, vowing to wreak her vengeance on the maiden messenger whom she had ordered to be kept prisoner by Sir Artigal, mistaking him for her own knight, and coming into her presence she ran at her with all her might. But Artigal, being aware thereof, stayed her cruel hand before it reached Samiant, and caught the weapon from her. Thereupon, like one distracted, she rushed forth, wherever her rage bore her, frantic with passion. Breaking out at a postern door, she ran into the wild wood, where, it is said, on account of her malice and cruelty, she was transformed into a tiger. The Adventure at the Den of Deceit After the defeat of the Sultan and the flight of his wicked wife, Prince Arthur and Sir Artigal wished to hand over the place and all its wealth to Samiant to hold for her lady, while they departed on their quest but the maiden begged them so earnestly to go with her to see Queen Mercilla that at last they consented. On the way she told them of a strange thing near at hand, to wit, a wicked villain who dwelt in a rock not far off, and who robbed all the country round, and took the pillage home. In this his own wily wit, and also the security of his dwelling-place, both of which were unassailable, were of great assistance. For he was so crafty both to invent and execute, so light of hand and nimble of foot, so smooth of tongue and subtle in his tail, that any one looking at him might well be taken in. Therefore he was called Deceit. He was well known for his achievements, 
and by his tricks had brought many to ruin. The rock also where he dwelt was wondrous strong, and hewn a dreadful depth far underground. Within it was full of winding and hidden passages, so that no one could find his way back who once went amiss. The knights, hearing this, longed to see the villain where he lurked, and bade Samiant guide them to the place. As they came near, they agreed that the best plan would be for the damsel to go on in front, and sit alone near the den, wailing and raising a pitiful uproar. When the wretch issued forth, hoping to find some spoil, they, lying in wait, would closely ensnare him before he could retreat to his den, and thus they hoped to foil him easily. Samiant immediately did as she was directed, and the noise of her weeping speedily brought forth the villain, as they had intended. He was as dreadful a creature as ever walked on earth, with hollow, deeply set eyes, and long, shaggy locks straggling down his shoulders. He wore strange garments all in rags and tatters, and in his hand he held a huge long staff, the top of which was armed with many iron hooks, to catch hold of everything that came within reach of his clutches, and he kept casting looks around in all directions. At his back he bore a great wide net, with which he seldom fished in the water, but which he used to fish for silly folk on the dry shore and in fair weather he caught many. When Samiant saw close beside her such an ugly creature she was really frightened, and now in earnest cried aloud for help. But when the villain saw her so afraid, he tried guilefully to persuade her to banish fear. Smiling sardonically on her, he diverted her mind by talking pleasantly and showing her some amusing tricks, for he was an adept at jugglery and conjuring feats. Whilst her attention was engaged, he suddenly threw his net over her like a puff of wind, and snatching her up before she was well aware, ran with her to his cave. But when he came near and saw the armed knights stopping his passage, he flung down his burden and fled fast away. Sir Artigal pursued him, while Prince Arthur still kept guard at the entrance of the den. Up to the rock ran deceit, like a wild goat leaping from hill to hill and dancing on the very edge of the craggy cliffs. It was useless for the armed knight to think of following him, but he sent his iron man after him, for Talus was swift in chase. Then wherever deceit went, Talus pursued him, so that he soon forced him to forsake the heights and descend the low ground. Now deceit tried a new plan. He suddenly changed his form. First he turned himself into a fox, but Talus still hunted him as a fox. Then he transformed himself to a bush, but Talus beat the bush till at last it changed into a bird and passed from him, flying from tree to tree and from reed to reed. But Talus threw stones at the bird, so that presently it changed itself into a stone, and dropped to the ground. Whereupon Talus took the stone up in his hand, and brought it to the knights, and gave it to Sir Artigal, warning him to hold it fast for fear of tricks. While the knight seized it in a tight grip, the stone went unawares into a hedgehog, and pricked him, so that he threw it away. Then it began to run off quickly, returning to deceit's own shape. But Talus soon overtook him, and brought him back. But when he would have changed himself into a serpent, Talus drove at him with his iron flail, and thrashed him so that he died. So that was the end of deceit, the self-deceiver. Leaving his dead body where it fell, the two knights went on with the maiden to see her lady, as they had agreed. Presently they beheld a stately palace, mounted high with terraces and towers, and all the tops were glistening with gold which seemed to outshine the sky, and with their brightness dazzled the eyes of strangers. There alighting they were directed in by Samiant, and shown all that was to be seen. The magnificent porch stood open wide to all men day and night, yet it was well guarded by a man of great strength like a giant, who sat there to keep out guile and malice and spite, which often under a feigned semblance works much mischief in princes' courts. His name was Awe. 
Passing by him they went up the hall, which was a wide, large room, filled with people, making a great din. In the thickest of the press the marshal of the hall, whose name was Order, came to them, and, commanding peace, guided them through the throng. All ceased their clamor to gaze at the knights, half terrified at their shining armor, which was a strange sight to them, for they never saw such array there, nor was the name of war ever spoken, but all was joyous peace and quietness and just government. So by degrees they were guided into the presence of the queen. She sat high up on a throne of bright and shining gold adorned with priceless gems. All over her was spread a canopy of state, glittering and gleaming like a cloud of gold and silver, upheld by the rainbow-colored wings of little cherubs. Thus she sat in sovereign majesty, holding a scepter in her royal hand, the sacred pledge of peace and clemency. At her feet lay her sword, the bright steel brand rusted from long rest, yet when foes forced it or friends sought aid, she could draw it sternly to dismay the world. Round about her sat a bevy of fair maidens, clad in white, whilst underneath her feet lay a great huge lion, like a captive thrall, bound with a strong iron chain and collar. Now at the instant when the two stranger knights came into the presence of the queen, she was holding, as it happened, a great and important trial. Having acknowledged their obeisance with royal courtesy, she gave orders to proceed with the trial, and wishing that the knights should see and understand all that was going on, she bade them both mount up to her stately throne, and placed one on each side of her. Then there was brought forth as prisoner a lady of great beauty and high position, but who had blotted all her honor and titles of nobility by her wicked behavior. This was no other than the false Duessa, who had wrought so much mischief by her malice and cunning. Seeing the piteous plight in which she now stood, Prince Arthur's tender heart was touched with compassion, but when he heard the long roll of her crimes read forth, he could no longer wish that she could escape punishment. Sir Artigal, for the sake of justice, was against her, and she was judged guilty by all. Then they called loudly to the queen to pronounce sentence. Marcilla was deeply moved at the sight of Duessa's wretched plight, and even then would gladly have pardoned her, but in order to save her land from further evil, which would grow if not checked, she was obliged to keep to the stern law of justice. Melting to tears, she suddenly left her throne, unable to speak the words that doomed the prisoner to death, and she never ceased to lament with bitter remorse the fate which the wretched Duessa had brought on herself. End of section 20. Recording by Sean Michael Hogan, St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada.